And I really like the way that Alex thinks about trust-based philanthropy. Um, and he compares it to climbing. And he says, you know, in, in rock climbing, you meet a partner, you maybe go out on a climb with them, and you develop a relationship. As you develop that climbing relationship, you then get to a point where you trust them with, their, with your life, you know, completely. I think there's more need to do the same in, in philanthropy so that we can maximize, again, the, the dollars going into the hands of the folks who historically haven't been able to access it. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, we're going to learn how a world-renowned rock climber started a foundation to deploy solar energy to the most underprivileged areas of the world. This episode unravels the Honnold Foundation's global reach, highlighting partnerships with organizations worldwide, and emphasizing values centered on clean, accessible, and affordable energy for all. We also uncover the foundation's exponential growth post-free solo and its unique cohort model. The discussion spans challenges and opportunities in renewable energy advocacy with a special focus on work with indigenous communities in the upper Amazon. Join us on this journey through the intersection of environmental advocacy and sustainable energy solutions on this episode of The Green Hour. Many of you may recall watching the Netflix documentary Free Solo, which captures Alex Honnold's free solo ascent of El Capitan. While widely recognized as a world-class rock climber, what may not be as well known is Alex's profound commitment to environmental causes. In 2012, during a period when he was living a nomadic lifestyle in a van, he founded the Honnold Foundation. It was during this time that he began to see the impact that climate change was having on the sport that he loved. Juggling life on the road, he dedicated significant time to research, delving into topics like carbon offsets, environmental activism, energy access, and charitable giving. What came out of all this research is the Honnold Foundation, a nonprofit that provides grants to organizations advancing solar energy access all over the world. Joining us on the Green Hour is the Development and Communications Manager for the Honnold Foundation, Peter Wally. Peter is also an avid rock climber, which seems to be in the DNA of the Honnold Foundation. Peter has worked broadly across the nonprofit and development space since 2015. He was informed by an early career working with grassroots nonprofits and community development initiatives in Detroit. He became passionate about empowering grassroots leaders with the resources they need to address inequality in their communities and beyond. The Honnold Foundation focuses on bringing solar power to communities across the Americas. Their efforts go beyond environmental goals, aiming to improve the lives by ensuring reliable and sustainable energy access. Through community projects, the foundation is making a real difference for households and entire communities, promoting resilience, equity, and economic well-being. It's incredible to think that all of this started with one person, 
noticing how climate change was impacting the sport that they love. So the first question I have for you, Peter, is, I mean, if you work for the Honor Foundation, does that mean you have to be a rock climber, mountain climber? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that, that you are, right? <laughs> so, yes, I will I will share the caveat that uh, I, I myself do, you know, partake here and there. I would say dabble in rock climbing, mountain climbing, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, while we've, while we've uh, thought about making that a requirement in Jeff, no, it is not a requirement. Um, it, it is actually a funny story, though. When I first um, kind of reached out to HF four years ago, I've been with the team for four years, I wrote in my cover letter, uh, one of the first sentences, you know, I want to work at the Honnold Foundation, not because I think Alex Honnold, uh, our founder, is a cool guy for free soloing El Cap, which is kind of what he's best known for, documented in the uh, film Free Solo, but because I genuinely admire, you know, his commitment to, um, you know, renewable energy access all around the world, and I want to help boost that up. Um, so yeah, I mean, from from day one, I think I've been, uh, while you know, certainly compelled by Alex's journey as a rock climber, even more compelled by the broader work. Hmm. So, so obviously you're working with the Honnold Foundation now, but I mean, before you're working with the foundation, what were you doing? Could you talk a little bit about your life, how you got to the place you are today, and really, really what your motivations are? Yeah, yeah, happy to. So I'm born and raised in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. I originally went through my undergrad thinking I wanted to uh, teach high schoolers. Um, so shortly after graduation, I um, kind of spent a year teaching uh, high school English in the classroom and quickly realized that the students who I was working with just had so many needs beyond the classroom. Um, and meanwhile, I was starting to see, um, just I, I, you know, for what it's worth, I had a minor in renewable energy in uh, my undergrad. I was really starting to become more and more concerned with um, both the climate crisis and the idea of a just transition in the midst of a transition to renewable energy. And I wanted to, you know, do my small part in uh, making that a reality. So I left the classroom knowing that I had kind of these, these goals, right? And started entering into the Detroit nonprofit space. At first, you know, focusing on, in on um, equity and education um, in, in the Detroit area, because that was more at that time my background. Um, I spent a lot of time um, doing kind of special projects, trying to figure out a way to bridge the digital divide in Detroit. At that point in time, 45% of Detroiters lacked access to high-speed internet in their homes. Um, so we were doing a combination of like infrastructure and educational development there. And then from there, I eventually transitioned to working for a small kind of after-school nonprofit. And at that point, that's when I first entered kind of the grassroots fundraising space. And that was my first kind of experience um, jostling as a small grassroots nonprofit for grant-making dollars. And I realized how difficult it was as, you know, a small organization that might have great traction, great proof of concept, a solid leadership team, and nevertheless, you know, how difficult it was to ultimately access those institutional um, philanthropic dollars as that small nonprofit in such an early stage. And how scrappy they had to be. Uh, so I wanted to be able to try to do something a little bit different from the grant making side of things. Um, that's when I was turned on to the Honnold Foundation, kind of saw that the team was starting to scale up, um, reached out, um, and the rest is kind of history. Hmm. So it sounds like from the very beginning, I mean, even from school, you were very interested in the climate crisis. It sounds like 
from the get-go, I mean, from working and, and growing up in Detroit, looking at the lack of access to high-speed internet, to now with the Honold Foundation, looking at, you know, what can we do to provide solar energy to to masses, to the masses of people? All of your experiences revolve around, uh, revolve around one thing, and that's social impact. Um, you have gone behind a mission for everything that you've done, and I think that's incredible. Um, I think a lot of people get kind of caught up in the corporate corporate trap. Um, and you can lose um, sight of, of the mission, but it sounds like you haven't. And you're working for an incredible organization, the Honold Foundation. So I, I think your experiences, all of them have, have kind of led you down this path and what you're doing now. Um, and I think that's really cool. But talking about talking about the Honold Foundation now and talking about the work that you currently do, what is your title? Um, what, what do you do on a day-to-day basis with the organization? Um, and how are you helping them again? unveil and and release solar power to to the masses so first of all thanks for saying all those nice things i don't know how entirely true they are but uh you know i'll take it and run with it so my my formal title at hf is development and communications manager but really we're a small but mighty team of seven folks so um as a small nonprofit ourselves we all wear a lot of day-to-day um i kind of manage all of our organizations journal communications both from um you know, a kind of website development standpoint and from a PR standpoint. Then I also manage a lot of like the partnerships and, and, you know, mid-dollar donor fundraising and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, But also behind the scenes, I also kind of wear the hat of operations here and there. Um, That's just kind of what winds up happening a lot in the nonprofit space. So yeah, I mean, the Holland Foundation, to kind of say a little bit more about our work, um, we find and see grassroots solar energy projects all around the world um that um have some sort of a connection between um resourcing a community with solar energy and building social or economic equity in that community. Um we do that through grant making dollars. So our grants typically range from 25k in size to 150k in size, sometimes one year, sometimes multi-year. The unifying factor is ultimately that all of our projects are about, you know, more than just flipping a switch and turning on the lights. They're about um, helping arming, helping helping to arm communities with the solutions that they see solar energy bringing to them. Whether that's um, you know using electrification to provide refrigeration for vital health services, whether that's using electrification for um, displacing the need for diesel fuels, uh, which is both pollutive and expensive for a lot of these um, communities worldwide. Uh, whether that's kind of stabilizing different regions in the midst of um, like climate climate sensitive regions um, that are kind of at increased risk of of storms, um, thinking not just um, you know the idea of turning on a light, which is an extremely powerful thing, but the the secondary and tertiary impacts of that creates. Hmm. It makes me really excited and honestly hopeful and optimistic about the future. Because I hear about stories of, of like the Honold Foundation, the work that you're doing, um, coupled with, you know, the work that um, I met with a guy in, in New York at Concordia. His name was Yosef Abramowitz with Gigawatt Global. He's doing something similar um, across Africa, trying to bring solar to communities. Um, and it looks like what you're doing and what, what the Honold Foundation is doing a lot, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you are working in South America and Central America, or is it, or is it South America primarily? Yeah, we work we work across the Americas, so North America, South America, Central America, and then we work in any island nation worldwide that has some level of um, 
of uh, that's that's particularly susceptible to the impact of climate change. You know, whether that's um, potential for increasing rate of storms, right, um, or, or um, you know, a shift in the climate creating uh, a risk of you know historical fuel like food sources drying up um you know um, a need for like some sort of uh, solar power irrigation for agriculture um but yeah we we actually work and we actually work a little bit in um in africa um but we've since moved away because folks like yusuf are doing it at such broad scale and mm-hmm. we are tend to be kind of more of this small to medium scale um, and we're specifically targeting these regions because they're some of the most underfunded regions in the world. Yeah, it's better to ask, how do you find these locations? Because, I mean, you're mentioning the Americas, uh, mentioning a place like Africa where, you know, that they have organizations like Gigawatt Global that's working there. How do you find these places um, in areas of the world that, that need solar energy the most? So something that's unique about HF is that we actually have... Um, an, an annual call, open call for applications, um, essentially an open RFP that goes out once per year. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of philanthropic entities are, are invite only. Um, you know, which I totally understand. It's a lot to come through applications, right? Um, but it's one, one asset that we have is our founder's reach, right? Um, and he, uh, in addition to, you know, giving away a third of his income towards this work, he, um, you know, is totally willing to help us get the word out about the work itself. And so basically, you know, four years or so ago or so, when we first launched this, this mode of this open RFP, we sent it out to the, the world and we we're like, I don't know, you know, how much need is there? How many folks are going to apply? Are we getting the word out to the right locations? And over the span of about a month, we received 800 applications from over a hundred different countries. And that represented roughly a hundred million dollars in potential projects. Um, then, you know, the next year we were like, well, you know, are, are we going to repeat it? We got another 500 applications. So each year we received 500 to 800 applications and our team comes through each and every one of those to try to find, um, essentially the, uh, it's hard to say the most deserving because so many of them are deserving. Um, but the most immediately applicable, um, amidst those. Um, so what that winds up looking like is, you know, in our, we're, we're not based on an endowment. So what we raise every year is what we spend each year. We, we fund the top 25 or so projects, um, representing currently what, what our, what we have budgeted is roughly $2 million worth, worth of funding. So I'll, I'll bring this back to New York again, because this just, I just wrote this note down talking yeah. about the application process, talking about the cohort that you have and all these applications that people have from all over the world. I had spoke to um, a lady by the name of Sonia Scarcelli. She heads the BHP's um, Explorer program, something similar, where mining companies, early stage mining companies will you know, submit applications to you know, get funded and go through this whole process with one of the lar- world's largest um, mining companies, BHP. And, you know, they, they're provided funding, they're provided help along the way. And it's a really cool program. And that leads me into the point that I was that I was going to ask you, with your application process, you know, how does that work? Um, what are what are some of the criteria that um, people that are applying? What, what do what are some of that criteria that they have to go through? Um, and what are you really looking for in terms of applications? Great question. Great question. So 
in terms of the process, it's, it's meant to be as low lift as possible and as respectful for these small nonprofit organizations. Going back to this idea of what does it mean to be um, an equity and partnership minded funder? Uh, a lot of times these organizations have small staff, um, with limited resources to, to submit these applications. Um, you know, whether that's limited hours, limited expertise, whatever it might be. They're experts in what they're doing and the ideas and, and what their community needs because they're from those communities. Um, but they not, may not be experts in submitting a 20 page, um, you know, philanthropy contract, right? Um, so because of that, the first stage of our application is designed to be super low lift, about 10 minutes long, designed to understand if the organization meets what we consider kind of our, our minimum criteria. And that criteria is, uh, a list that involves, you know, a couple of the following. So we want the organization to fundamentally be, you know, community based or have a long history of community connection, meaning that, um, either the organization is founded by and for the community being served, or there's 10 plus years of runway in working with that community and that community otherwise wouldn't have the resources to stop organize and submit. Um, hmm. This way, we don't wind up rebranching to larger umbrella entities or working directly with community-level solutions. Um, organization has charitable status or equivalent in its country of origin. That the majority, but key, not all of the funding, needs, needs to ultimately be used towards the solar project in question. Um, our project or our grants are ultimately unrestricted. They're just project-specific. Um, then um, that equity component, you know, thinking about is there something to the project that's more than just, you know, putting, putting some panels on roofs, right? And then a couple of others that the organization is led by and, and serves um, indigenous and or black majority communities. Uh, we tend to prioritize women-led organizations um, or, or at least, you know, organizations that have at least 50% um, women leadership across all tiers of the organization. I think the last point would be that we're looking for organizations ultimately that have a unique idea that would have a really hard time accessing that philanthropic runway so that we can provide seed funding and initial support and proof of concept so that, you know, in a couple of years, once they have that concept, they can go ahead and get, get that larger funding roadway um, because, because they've got that proof of concept to, to submit an application with. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, you touch on the equity, I'll call it social piece of things when we're talking about sustainability. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the, the more important things in terms of sustainability is, is how can you impact the communities around you? And how can you impact the people that, you know, might be marginalized, the people that might be underrepresented in their communities? How can you give them platform? How can you give them opportunities that they might not get? So kudos to y'all, because that's, that's something that, the more I get into sustainability, the more that I see how impactful and important that is. And it's a huge pillar when we're talking about sustainability. So talking about your cohort, I'm, I'm guessing you had one in 2023. Could you walk, could you walk us through um, some of those members of the cohort, you know, where, where they're located, you know, what their projects were. You don't have to get too specific because I know it could be, it could be a long talk here, but uh, just talk a little bit about the that cohort. Since 2020, we've funded over 70 different projects in over 20 different countries, um, over 25 now different countries around the world. In 2023 alone, I think, I think the best umbrella description would be 
we've basically found those projects that we know have worked in the past and we've doubled down. So we're supporting, um, you know, we're supporting, uh, solar installation and job and workforce development on the Navajo and Hopi Nation here in the U.S. Um, we're supporting another unique project on, um, Cheyenne territory that's about, um, creating solar infrastructure for, um, the, the management of a bison herd for a tribe. Um, which is kind of a unique and interesting concept when you go down the historical past of, of what bison mean to uh, Native American peoples. Uh, in South America, where we're supporting multiple different kinds of job training programs in individual communities, we're supporting, um, one of my favorite projects, honestly, is, is, um, acai processing projects. We, we see a variety of them. Um, in a lot of these small indigenous communities, fruit processing is currently either diesel powered or like, you know, uh, uh, a human process, right? Someone goes in and grinds the fruits, right? And when you introduce solar and, you know, electrified machinery into these processes, it dramatically increases the economic activity and capacity and um, potential for those communities. Um, so we found when we, we had that, um, when, when we, yeah, when we work in communities on, on those like kind of fruit processing solar projects, it allows these indigenous communities not just to, um, kind of just barely make ends meet. It, it means, you know, essentially better conservation outcomes for the Amazon rainforest. Last one I'll share is, uh, in 2023, we also supported, um, and another kind of plastic Honolulu foundation style project is, solar energy for um schools um we've done a handful of them in guatemala in particular um schools for indigenous girls who um chronically in guatemala i think there's you know roughly an 18 percent high school graduation rate um and a lot of these schools do incredible work to support um you know young women in, in graduating and developing the future for themselves um solar energy is really ultimately just a tool to help these buildings lower their utility um, lower their carbon footprint. And then usually there's some sort of an education component to that project where the girls, the students get to learn about solar, learn about renewables, and hopefully be leaders in their own communities in the future. I love that. I love that education starts and real change starts when people are young and they learn something and they can take that with them when when they become leaders in their community. Exactly what you're saying. I mean, that's that that is really really cool um, work that y'all are doing, and you mentioned you mentioned the Amazon rainforest. This is you know such an important area of the world uh, for stabilizing the climate. Um, you know it's also rich in biodiversity, and and but climate change is really hampering the area. Um, when I was again when we were in New York um, for Climate Week, I heard a talk with um, Avon Duque, former president of Colombia talking about, you know, if we don't make change, the Amazon rainforest will actually become carbon negative, which blows your mind. Um, it could be a net emitter. Um, and it's kind of kind of hard to to sit back and think net emitter, really a rainforest. But work that y'all are doing, um, obviously in South America is going to contribute to helping the Amazon rainforest get back to where it needs to be. I'm in the US, you're in the US, but all the work that we can do ac- across the world and in a place like the Amazon rainforest is ultimately going to help us um, as 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 we continue to progress. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and you know I think that there's multiple pathways to get there, right? Um, and and I think that HF specialty in that regard is maintaining that community level focus. That's where we've honestly seen one, you know, again, like this co- 
continued kind of historical underfunding of, of the community-based work. But secondarily, we now have like kind of proof of concept for how important that community-based work can be to conservation outcomes ultimately. You know, just one, one example. Um, we released, we recently, uh, released a, a short film, um, via Bloomberg, um, titled Our Children's River. I was lucky enough to kind of get to go spend time in Ecuador to shoot the film. And it was, um, we spent three weeks in, uh, Sinangue, Ecuador, which is kind of, um, out in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And, uh, the community of Sinangue, alongside several other indigenous communities in the region, um, self-organized what they call La Guardia, the guard who each week go out on patrols over their uh, territory. Um, in the case of uh, Sinangue and the, uh, the Kofan, that, that's their indigenous nation, it's uh, over 70,000 hectares of land, right? So that's 70,000 hectares of land that they're, they consider themselves responsible for. And they were using um, kind of drones, camera trap, that sort of thing to try to capture evidence of illegal extractive industry in their territory and in the Amazon so that they could take those bad actors to their government and hold them accountable. Uh, trouble was, you know, they're trying to go out for 10 plus state patrols across the territory and be off grid for a long period of time. You can't, you know, charge up the batteries and, and actually do the work that you need to do. Um, so that's where HF came in. We helped fund a series of kind of strategically placed patrol stations across different pockets of their territory. And over time, they were able to gather that evidence because they were able to stay off grid longer. And ultimately, that that resulted in the protection of over 70,000 hectares of land. And when you think about, um, I, I think one of my big takeaways, other than, you know, just how incredible it is and when you, when you kind of trust and empower a community partner, uh, the fact that ultimately that was Originally a $50,000 investment from the Hong Foundation, right? And while we can't take sole credit for the results, there was a micro scale level of investment that resulted in a net, like massive carbon impact. And that's where I think that there's more potential. Yeah, that, that, I love that story, patrol stations and trying to catch people that, that aren't doing, doing the right thing. Th- th- that $50,000 investment, was that specifically for patrol um, stations or was that for renewables as well? That was specifically for solar for the patrol stations. Oh, I see. Um, so we, we installed battery backed solar panels at each of these patrol stations and it also went towards some, some homes in the community. Um, and, um, again, when we made that investment, right, we, we didn't know what the ultimate impact was. There, there was an element of trust, right? Um, and something we talk a lot about that I'd be happy to talk more about is like this idea of trust-based farm. But, um, ultimately, you know, they had this idea on how they wanted to and needed to use solar to meet their goals. And when we let them do that, um, great things happened. But yeah, it was solar specifically for these patrol stations. So to give you an idea of how remote this is, right? Um, when I traveled to Quito, um, Ecuador, so, you know, fly from the United States to Quito, um, then, uh, spent, uh, some time in Quito, um, you know, meeting up with the film crew. We took another plane to, um, basically the, the edge of the Amazon. Um, so, you know, a couple hours in the air from there and we drove eight hours, stayed overnight at, um, you know, one essentially, um, you know, a host 
And then from there, we drove another four hours the next morning to a riverbank, got picked up by a boat, crossed the river. We're at an island in the middle of the river, hugged across the island, crossed another island, and then we arrived in, in, their, in their community, at the community of roughly 250 people. Um, so again, this gives you a sense of like how out there they are and, and how um, fundamentally like then by extension, biodiverse and, and untouched for the most part, that swath of land is to give you a sense of like the size and importance and biodiversity. Right. So, I mean, a community of 250 people, I mean, you're, you're saying that this land was basically untouched. I mean, this is very bi- biodiverse. And the problem that they're facing is extraction. Was this extraction from companies or was, was this seeing like, like groups of people that were extracting resources? Um, what, what, was, what was happening, I guess, in that area? And, and who were the culprits? I couldn't, put, frankly, put a name on the corporates because, you know, I think that we could put our tinfoil packs on and, and trace things back, right? But that wasn't necessarily our goal um, to, uh, you know, uncover the specific uh, bad actors from, from our end, right? Um, but there, there's, there's a few primary activities that tend to happen in that region. One, deforestation, like illegal deforestation. Someone, um, you know, starts cutting down the forest on a part of their land. Um, without, without express permission. Um, secondarily, gold mining. Um, there's a lot of gold deposits in that river. And ultimately that creates, um, that creates, um, um, I want to say, uh, arsenic poisoning. Am I remembering that right? Um, but, but the, the, the minerals and the deposits that ultimately go into the gold mining process damage that river ecosystem, which has, Effects not just on the community's health, right? They've got um, issues with persistent um, generational Down syndrome as a result. It's mm. the primary means of food are, are fish from the river. Um, but then, uh, you know, it also affects the, the biodiversity of the river, which affects the rest of the Amazon. Um, and then you also have um, kind of consistent pressure from oil companies to sell land rights um, to then go and, and, and um, try to do, um, try, try to get oil and and what happens a lot of times in these communities and why kind of important these specific communities are so important and honestly what was um, a pretty big realization for me personally so maybe a few months after we came back one of the neighboring communities um had a tragedy happen and what happened was that um there the community was being split apart because an oil company had come in and they had said Hey, you know, we will pay you all for land rights to, um, you know, try to, try to, you know, mine your land. And, uh, you know, a lot of these communities don't necessarily have a ton. And so the community was split down the middle. Half wanted to sell the land rights so that they could, um, you know, have a little bit more, um, economic mobility and half, uh, you know, wanted to continue to protect the land. One of the leaders of the side of the community that was trying to protect the land one morning. Um, was assassinated in his garden. And frequently, these kinds of things happen. Um, and the the suspicion is that a lot of these are fueled through these feuds. Hmm. That, that was a question I was going to ask. I mean, what what challenges did, did, did the Hunterwood Foundation or did this area in Ecuador face, you know, as this was happening? Because you have big industry and big industry has big money. <laughs> And with big money can can come, you know, corruption and, and different things. 
And it it almost sounds like a similar instance that happened. We, we were talking before this call started about you know Appalachia and talking about West Virginia. And this is what happened with big oil um, in Eastern Kentucky. You have these big oil companies coming in and you know you're selling off the land rights. And then you have mining that comes into the city, into the county. And then as you're talking about with ripple effects, so it's like the gold mining in, in this area in Ecuador, you had ripple effects of, of oil mi- of, of mining in eastern Kentucky, um, where you had people you know, getting, getting black lung and, and different diseases, and the communities were just um, hampered by this. So ripple effects across the board, um, two different areas of the world. You have somewhere in Appalachia, then you have somewhere in South America. But it all comes down, it all comes back to the same thing of how, you know, big, I say big oil right now, but big industry can kind of lead um, in these, I'll call them small towns that might, I would say, in, that are impoverished and that need money, that need resources. And then they throw money in their face and then they just pollute and, and destroy these communities. And it's, it's a really sad story to see. Um, and I mean, you, you saw it. I'm in South America. Um, I didn't see it in Eastern Kentucky, but I read about it. it. That makes this this project even more impactful because what y'all were able to do is fund solar to keep these patrol stations on, so you could stop this from happening. And just that little thing could have stopped all these ripple effects. And I think that's that that probably sums up the Honold Foundation the best way that you can. Something little and small as a solar panel to uh, to conserve energy. And to keep, let's say, the lights on for a patrol station can help all with all of these things. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to think about, but um, but that's that is really really cool stuff. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate that, and I think you absolutely cut to the heart of it, right? Um, one of our favorite kind of catch lines, and it's a little hokey, but I think it's really true. You know, small step, small steps spark big change, right? Hmm. And Alex first started HF. Um, before he was particularly well-known, um, before he was, um, frankly, you know, not, and I think by many people's structures, you know, they, they would say that he's not you know, insanely wealthy. He certainly wasn't, you know, wealthy uh, back, uh, when he first started HF. He was, as as us climbers call it, a dirtbag van life vagabond, uh, <laughs> living in his van full-time, uh, traveling the world. Um, and, and he just saw, you know, um, the effects of both climate change on, on the sport that he loved and the effects of climate change on all of these different communities, uh, living in, in, in poverty, um, around the world. And, um, he, he felt like solar was this unique, um, unique technology. And at that time emerging, um, back in 2012, where, you know, even on a small scale, he could create an impact. And that's when, you know, in 2012, he decided to dedicate a third of his income towards these projects. And that's when it was really just like one project a year, you know? Um, it was like he would, he would go online, he would research, and he would help fund that one project, right? And a few years later, he was personally starting to make a little bit more money because he was starting to become a bigger name to fund more projects. Then on the heels of Free Solo, there was a sense that HF could be more than just Alex supporting a handful of projects and that the film might kind of catapult his personal notoriety to the next level. Alex isn't really, frankly, the kind of guy who's, who loves the limelight, but he's also someone who is going to search for the utility in, in that. 
right? Um, and he was like, well, if I'm going to gain this level of notoriety and, and um, continue to amass you know, a certain level of resources, it only seems fair that I both continue what I'm doing do, and, and try to galvanize more support. So these days, while Alex still gives a third of his income towards, towards HF, um, and that, that basically allows our, our operations, it funds, it funds our overhead. We're joined by a growing community of supporters that enable the solar energy projects. Mm. But again, that all started from like just one person's small but significant decision to, um, you know, act philanthropically and ultimately what I consider a pretty radical, pretty compelling way, um, which is pretty cool. And I think that that ethos drives our work now. Yeah. What I find cool is I've I've had guests on in the past, one that I can think of off the top of my head. um, Her name's Sierra Kudakwet, professional skier. And it was something similar to Alex where, you know, she's skiing and, and every year the snow yield is getting lower and lower She's not being able to ski in her favorite places. And she's like, what's going on? She, she stepped back and, and was thinking, you know, wh- what is happening? And that's when she became involved in, in the climate movement and, and finding solutions around the climate. And it sounds like Alex is the same way. I mean, he's climbing, he's climbing mountains, climbing something like El Capitan, uh, you know, free soloing, as, as we all know. But he's seeing how the climate is impacting uh, the environment around us and around him. And I think I think that's what really makes this story really cool about the Honold Foundation is he identified that through his passion of, of climbing. And he didn't just sit back and say, you know, why, why do I have to do anything about it? He said, I'm, I'm going to do something about it and I'm going to make a change and I can make a change. And he's donating a third of his income. I would say advocacy is even more valuable than a third of his income than the financial, the financial piece of it. So yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that story uh, because a lot of us have seen the movie Free Solo. I remember watching it in my college dorm room probably four years ago, four or five years ago, um, and just being amazed uh, about the accomplishment. And never in the world w- would I have ever thought that I'd be talking to someone um, that that works in the foundation. So this is kind of a full circle moment for me. So we talked about Ecuador. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about the other projects, but. One note that I have in here that I wanted to get into, um, I, I wrote it as like a case study per se, um, and it's on one of your partners, uh, Native Renewables. You know, I just I just wanted to hear. And I know this is a big partner for y'all, um, and I just wanted to hear. You know, what is NRI? You know, what's its mission? And you know, what what territories and areas are they working in? And how are y'all how are y'all helping them? No, thanks. Thanks for bringing them up because uh, I'm a personal fanboy of uh, Suzanne Zinger, uh, the uh, the co-founder and executive director of Native Renewables. Um, so Native Renewables is a Native American-led organization um, that's mission is really to bring solar to um, folks on the Navajo and Hopi Nation, um, where, um, for those who, who are listening who may not be aware, there's still, you know, 14,000 homes on Navajo and Hopi territory, which is in, um, like, Northern Arizona and then spans into New Mexico, I believe. Um, and you know, a, a, a big, big swath of land. Folks who are still off grid. And these are homes where, you know, there might be electricity, like, like an actual, um, wires going over their home. And yet they still don't have electricity. 
Um, so I think frequently what can happen is that there's some sort of a top down solution where, um, you know, there's maybe some sort of a subsidized access to, um, energy that's, that's promised, right? The cool thing about native renewable is that they're building economic ap- opportunity, um, by and for, um, native Americans on the Navajo and Hopi nation in addition to trying to solarize as many off-grid homes as possible. So they do workforce development for folks um, on the reservation. So they have a team of 10 or so installers, I believe, and, and rapidly counting. And then, you know, one by one, they're, they're solarizing homes on, on the reservation. And I think that's a really powerful thing. I mean, HF has been supporting them for roughly um, three years, I want to say now. Um, you know, initially through that seed funding grant, right? Um, that allowed them to, I believe, hire a few more technicians and, and install solar on a few more homes. And now we've expanded that support into a multi-year grant as they start to expand on their own right and bring on, um, larger, larger funders from elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's really the name of the game, right? And I think that there's other solutions at play that might help lead that process, but I think that you can't understate the importance of a significant part of the transition to renewable energy on Navajo and Hopi lands being led by Navajo and Hopi people. Um, Mm. Because that enables them to not just, you know, get access to energy, but benefit from the economic value of that energy. Mm. I love that. For all those people that have have listened to this podcast, um, they can recall me in in a lot of episodes talking about policy specific in the U.S. Um, and talking about you know two big two major policies that were passed very recently: the Inflation Reduction Act and then the Bipartisan in- Infrastructure Law. I'm curious how your foundation and how the Honor Foundation approaches something like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and if policy like this provides any funding towards the Honnold Foundation? Frankly, I am too. So, I mean, I think the, as it's currently written, to my knowledge, the Honnold Foundation isn't um, a great fit for a lot of that IRA money. Um, You know, there isn't currently a bucket that exists out there that we can access um, as of now, right? I think that our goal is with some of our US-based partners help uh, facilitate them with the resources that they need to access some of those federal dollars, right? And I think that um, our sweet spot is the fact that, and, and it's actually a current, to my knowledge, a pain point of the Inflation Reduction Act, is figuring out how to get that money in the hands of these small community-based nonprofits, right? Um, because, again, th- these are folks who may not have the... Um, the personnel on staff to write and manage, you know, a large scale federal grant. They need, you know, that expertise and support in order to access those dollars. Um, you know, whether it's the IRA or whether it's other philanthropic dollars, many times small, you know, nonprofits need a full time staff member just to manage that grant in the first place. But then on the flip side, that full-time staff person's salary can't actually be covered by the dollars because it's restricted funding towards something else. 
Mm-hmm. And so again, that's, that's kind of where we're trying to resource the partners. Um, I think it's an incredible thing. I think it's already having incredible impacts. And I really hope that we can figure out efficient ways to help point our grassroots partners towards accessing those dollars. Hmm. So you mentioned this term earlier, um, trust-based philanthropy. And I think this is a great time to talk about it um, after talking about something like the IRA. I've heard this term a lot, but I'll be honest with you, Peter. I, I don't, I, I couldn't give you a great definition on it. And I feel like a lot of people might have different definitions depending on what organization you work with. So the question I'd ask you is, in terms of the Honold Foundation, you know, what is trust-based philanthropy? I would say in terms of the Honold Foundation, we think about trust-based philanthropy as, you know, uh, pretty, pretty simple, honestly. It's, it's, we vet a partnership, you know, come to build some fundamental relationships to understand what the goals of the partnership are and then step back and let the folks who we've identified as experts in the field, you know, use the resources that we're giving them with as little of you know, um, red tape as possible. Uh, we want to maximize the amount of support that we're giving while we minimize the amount of, um, you know, frankly, like paperwork that we ask for. Again, like we're vetting the projects and we're ensuring that on the flip side of the project, the money is, uh, you know, that, that the project happened. Uh, but ultimately, we want to remove as many barriers to access for their dollars as, as possible. Mm. Um, and I really like the way that Alex thinks about trust-based philanthropy. Um, and he compares it to climbing. And he says, you know, in, in rock climbing, you meet a partner, you maybe go out on a climb with them, and you develop a relationship. And, you know, as you develop that climbing relationship, um, first after talking to them, you know, sizing them up, you then get to a point where you trust them with their, with your life, you know, completely. Um, and I think there's more need to do the same in, in philanthropy. Um, so that we can maximize again, the, the dollars going into the hands of the folks who historically haven't been able to access it. Challenge that I see, and, and tell me if this is a challenge that, that y'all see. Um, with this trust-based philanthropy, you're going into these communities that, you know, I'll say impoverished again, you know, maybe they, they've been, as we talked about earlier, been taken advantage of by big industry. Do you ever, do y'all see the problem of broken trust in the past with some of these people? And they've, they found it hard to trust a foundation like the Honor Foundation because they've been burnt so many times in the past. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I think that there's multiple frameworks to look at those relationships from. Um, one is, I think that when we're talking about renewable development, uh, models that we've seen in the past, specifically like historically humanitarian relief models, have resulted in airdrop pollutions into communities without an education component and or without um, you know, uh, a plan on how to keep those panels up and running so that when, um, when a community, you know, gets solar and they're told this is this wonderful, incredible thing. And then three months later, the panel break, that solar energy winds up in the landfill. And the next mm-hmm. time someone comes walking along wanting to, um, 
wanting to uh, install solar, they're like, hell no. Why would we do that? That stuff doesn't work. Um, and it's because, you know, someone used second life panels that weren't well, well vetted. Um, or again, someone didn't like work with the community to educate. Meanwhile, when the solution comes from the community, you're already facilitating that community buy-in from the get-go. And it leads not just to adoption within that community, but oftentimes, and what we've seen at HF is it leads to regional level adoption. Hmm. Um, to, to take one step back on that, I think that um, you know our experience as, as grant makers is, you know, folks are oftentimes surprised. They're they're both surprised and relieved when they realize that you know there isn't that prototypical pressure of the funder fundee relationship because when you think about it it's it's a power dynamic right and that prevents folks from um from really voicing their true needs which prevents work from 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 really getting done um so when you build that foundation of trust and prove that time and time again and then you start to kind of get the word out Right. Our grantee partners have, have referred peers in the space, uh, which helps us again, like build on that trust because we have a trusted partner who then, you know, introduced us to someone who they trust, builds that network. Um, and I think it offers this uniquely reparative solution to, for, for folks who, uh, who have been burnt in the past. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that the last thing that these people want is to be micromanaged, especially as you're saying they are uh, they're experts in what they do. That that's a great thing that that you almost you almost go for a hands off approach. Leave it to the experts. You know, we'll get you the money, we'll get you the funding, we'll make sure that this project is going in the right direction. At the end of the day, I mean, y'all are the experts. Y'all do what you do best. We'll do what we do best. Um, and I think a lot of there's a lot of foundations and groups that I've seen that have a different approach where it's more micromanaging and then it, it doesn't go as smooth. So the hands-off approach um, is in my opinion, the better way to go. And it's obviously worked, worked very well for, for the Honold foundation. And one thing I would add there too, is just to be clear, like we're on hand to support, right? We just don't require like that level of like um, report back. Right. So like, you know, we're on hand to help uplift partners' stories um, through our platform and Alex's platform, which I think is unique because Alex has a platform of, I think, like 2.7 million followers on Instagram, which is a really unique opportunity for our partners. We try to maximize for them. Uh, we're on hand to support with introductions and cohort building. Before they even get approved for the grant, we have a pro bono technical advisory committee that evaluates their project and basically um determines the feasibility of the project and then offers up you know specific um if needed you know a couple of pointers here and there for for just the technical side of things and and they stay on hand if there's support needed on that front too i think the difference is is that it's in the spirit of partnership not in the spirit of um we know what's best we we truly operate from a mode of you know if there's a community solution being implemented, the community knows how best to meet their needs. Hmm. So final question I have for you, Peter, um, and, and then we'll wrap this up. In terms of the future and looking at the future for the, for the Honold Foundation, 
what does the future look like? You know, what are some goals that y'all have that y'all are trying, let's say in 2024 and beyond? Um, and is there a, a big, I'll call it a big, one of my, one of my old bosses used to call these BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. You have a BHAG that you're going towards. Maybe I'll, I'll use Alex as an example. You have an El Capitan that you're going towards as, as something that no one's done before, but we're going to do it. We're going to put all of our energy in. I mean, I think that the most immediate goal is continuing to scale the way that we work throughout, through the, the pipeline of need in our core fund. So we're going to continue to do this annual open RFP model, but, um, you know, it's worth repeating. You know, we've, we've grown to the point where right now we're able to offer roughly two and a half million dollars in, in grant funding per year. Um, and we have a, a pipeline of, you know, pre-vetted projects that represents roughly $50 million in potential funding. And that list is only growing. So, I mean, the big hairy audition's goal, I think, is let's say by, about to be 2024. Let's say in 2025, we were able to get to $10 million in funding. And then, uh, in 2026, we were able to get to 20. And we slowly started whittling away at that pipeline. By which point, you know, between, let's say, the utility scale solar meets some of that need and, and a lot of this large, you know, big bat technology, government level solutions, top down funding, which all again, from, from a level of like macroeconomics is, is a necessity. And we're able to scale up in the unique way that we support and in the way that we do it, which, you know, is worth bearing repeating. Like it's fairly unique. I don't know of many other organizations that operate in the way that we do, um, with the value set that we do to meet as many of those partner projects as possible. And then I think secondarily, I would love to see, um, and, and before I say secondarily, I, I will say, the way that we would do that ultimately is through a combination of individual support, um, corporate support and, um, institutional philanthropic support. Um, so, you know, you're an institutional philanthropic funder out there. Reach <laughs> out, please. But then I would love to see our current cohort continue to expand their own solutions in their communities. So, um, one, one, big goal, right? Um, I didn't mention this, but one, one program that's been hugely successful is, um, Coalfield Development, one of our 2020 partners. They initially received HFC funding. They installed solar on the roof of a building and, um, really awesome, really successful, largest nonprofit solar inst installation in the state of West Virginia. That, and not that alone, but it led to the receiving of I believe roughly a hundred million dollars in IRA funding. We would love to see that kind of outcome replicated across multiple projects where our seed funding at least played some small role in a dramatic scale up. Meet as many of those partners' needs as possible. Um, you know, let's call it 50 million in funding and see as many of our current partners scale to the volume of need in their regions and beyond. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, this is. I've had a lot of fun on this conversation. I wish I had $50 million because I would provide it because I, I believe in your mission so much. Um, and I also, I also just really value um, all the things that you said. I mean, even, you know, breaking down solar in a way that, you know, a lot of people think of solar 
in one way of, of powering homes or, or powering something at larger scale, but you know, breaking down how solar powered patrol stations in the small place in um, Ecuador and how it ultimately helped conserve land. That is incredible. And, and I, I, I want to hear more stories like that because it makes me excited. Uh, and, and I think the last thing I'll say is I think I'm going to have to go rock climbing and, and mountain climbing this weekend when I go up to Kentucky um, because you've got me amped up. So, uh, but, but I can't thank you enough man, for man. get over to the Red River Gorge, Miguel's Pizza. Best yeah. pizzeria in Kentucky. Yeah. I, I've um, been there. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Hit it up and uh, let me know how it is. I miss the red. It's an incredible yeah. spot. <laughs> but hey, Preston, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for letting me wax poetic about uh, all of our partners in the projects. If you can't tell, I'm really passionate about the work that we do that I'm privileged to get to do. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you letting me share this with your audience.